idea of a shopping center needs to be reinvented from the ground up. And that makes a lot of people in the industry very, very nervous. I'm Daphne Howland, senior reporter at Retail Dive, and this is our podcast. We break down industry news and trends, talk to industry experts, and get into some of the details that didn't quite make it into our reporting. This is The Backroom. But first, a word from our sponsor. 91% of retailers report that return rates are growing faster than revenue growth. Download the new Incisive and APRIS Retail Report, Returns as Engagement Strategy, to learn how AI can help you engage shoppers at the point of return to build loyalty, reclaim revenue, and reduce the cost of returns. Download at APRISRetail.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Back Room. Today, we are indulging in our annual treat, our interview with Doug Stevens, the retail prophet. We've been doing this every year now for a few years. Started off as a print Q&A, but we've been lucky enough to have him on the podcast for the past couple of years. Doug, welcome to the back room. Thanks, Daphne. It's a pleasure to join you, as always. It's sort of... um... It's become an annual tradition for me too, and I enjoy it. This is a great way to both wrap up a year, which in retail is always interesting, and look forward. Doug has is a forward-looking type of analyst. His most recent book is Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. That's a really good place to look because we're not quite in a post-pandemic world. Looking at where we are, we often talk about being post-pandemic. Technically, the pandemic is still with us. Retail has definitely moved on from that first intense year of the pandemic. Where do you see you know, the state of retail and the consumer right now as things are? Yeah, it's a Rubik's Cube. I think, Daphne, when we spoke last year, I mentioned that uh, in researching my latest book, I spoke with uh, a gentleman named Sheldon Solomon, who's a professor of psychology and and, uh, social psychology at uh, Skidmore College in upstate New York. And it was an incredibly illuminating interview. Solomon is one of the primary experts on human behavior in the face of crisis or, you know, sort of existential peril. And I was really interested to tap him for his insights into how human beings behave in the midst of a crisis. And so he's researched uh, consumer behavior, human behavior in the face of things like 9-11 and other crises around the world. And, you know, he he said at the time that... Um, a few things happen, um, and it and it sort of goes right to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So you know, initially, when we're confronted with a threat, we have this intense need for safety and security, and so you know, we want to sort of hoard any resources that we feel can give us some sort of uh, uh, an insulation uh, against the threat. And and we saw that in spades at the outset of the pandemic uh, with panic buying and people, you know, hoarding supplies. But he went further in saying that, you know, we we then sort of try and climb the uh, the pyramid of needs. We look for belonging. We look for a sense of reclaiming our our self esteem and our sense of self worth. And we have thoughts about legacy and and sort of what does our life mean? What does it all add up to? I think what what I've 
noticed profoundly through through this crisis is is these behaviors unfolding. The the difficulty is, if it were just that easy, it would be easy for retailers to sort of predict, you know, where where consumers are in that process. The trouble is really twofold. A, we all re- respond differently. There is no one sort of pattern to the way these needs and the way our fears and, and needs play out. But secondly, these things can be either uh, positive or negative. Uh, and I think we've seen that too during the pandemic. You know, The need for belonging can either mean that we become more socially inclined, that we want to connect with friends and family, or it can mean that we become more tribal. Uh, and we've certainly seen that play out in the political sphere. Uh, the need for self-esteem may be that you want to buy some cosmetics or some new clothes. It may mean that you turn to alcohol or drugs. And we've seen addiction rates rising through the pandemic as well. So it's it's and that's why I say it's a Rubik's cube of human behavior that uh, we are still sort of mired in, and we're going to need some sense of stability and security for consumers to sort of get back to an even plane where they begin to to behave uh, as rationally, perhaps as consumers can ever behave. From the retail standpoint, from the retailer standpoint. I do think, though, this has been a real learning exercise. I think, first of all, retailers are now having to contend with a higher level of competition that's coming from all directions as uh, retailers add third-party marketplaces to their to their arsenal in, in an effort to compete with online players and in, in an effort to collect whatever marginal sales they might from, from any categories that consumers are shopping in. I think there's been a, a real lesson in the value of staff, particularly good ones, and what they're worth relative to what they were being paid pre-pandemic. Uh, the supply chain, certainly, there's a huge rethink going on around supply chain. At least I hope there is. There ought to be. Um, God forbid we just go back to business as usual in the supply chains, because I think we've seen how vulnerable they are to disruption. So I think on both sides, both from the consumer standpoint, there's been a lot of reflection on what is life all about? Where does consumption fit into You know what really makes me happy in my life? How will my consumer behavior maybe be different after the pandemic? And for retailers, it's been a big rethink on some really, really key issues that are integral to operation. You know, as you spoke about the various ways that human beings might react to crisis, which the pandemic certainly has been, you can sort of see the pattern, the way people hoarded, as you said, and hunkered down. The various stages of the pandemic sort of affected different segments of retail differently. You had people, you know, buying electronics, new televisions, new new furniture so that their homes, which is where they were stuck for so long, were outfitted well and comfortable. But now, really in the past several months, we've seen retailers have to compete with experiences. How do we how does retail think about that? I mean, if if people are going to be spending their money on things like plane tickets and hotels, you know, there's only so much discretionary funds that people have, especially now with inflation an issue. But to the extent that they can compete, what does that mean for retail that people are looking for being with others and going places and doing things? You know, I think pre-pandemic, I think we all had a sense that retail was increasingly having to compete with other forms of entertainment 
that it wasn't simply just about the acquisition of a product. I mean, regardless of what it is that you need, I mean, just before we jumped into this interview, I picked up my phone this morning and, and bought a couple of things in a matter of about 15 seconds online, searched, read reviews, made my decision, bought them, and they'll be on the doorstep tomorrow. So, you know, the consumer's problem isn't and hasn't been um, where to acquire a product. And that's been the case for, for years now. So it brings us to this uncomfortable truth that retail is now becoming more and more a form of entertainment. And, and so you'll have retailers that are really just in the business of supplying product and they'll do so very efficiently, very cost effectively. But there will be huge swaths of the industry now that are going to have to learn how to become entertaining how to become a place that people want to go to spend time, maybe to be with other people who are as enthusiastic about a category or a cross-section of merchandise as they are. And interestingly, I'm, I'm speaking and working with more and more young companies now that are coming into the market and really treating retail as a social endeavor. Uh, as opposed to you know just a commercial endeavor, um, whether it's you know starting a members-only club that sort of has some commercial elements to it, or creating event spaces that also have a commercial aspect to them. But I really believe that we're on the cusp of a completely new-looking industry uh, when when the pandemic finally lifts. So you're bringing to mind two big subjects that I want to touch on. But first, I want to back up a little bit and talk about sort of a more mundane trajectory, which is that we were seeing e-commerce. And you talked about the convenience of ordering online on your phone. It's only gotten faster. I don't, I'm not sure the delivery times have actually gotten faster, but certainly the ordering and the checking off of that box has gotten easier and faster. But the sort of surge in e-commerce that we saw during the height of the pandemic, that growth really settled down this year. And we've watched Amazon, I don't know, if, I don't think we can use the word struggle when it comes to Amazon, but we've seen Amazon shift gears in a way that I think would have surprised us a couple of years ago. I think there's more emphasis on performing well as a business, profits expenses. They've laid off a lot of people. They've frozen hiring. They're, they're taking a, you know, a red pen to their expense sheet and their, just their portfolio of businesses are being evaluated right now. Talk to me about where Amazon fits in in the retail landscape. Are they the disruptor that they once were? Are Amazon or is e-commerce in general in a new phase? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, it, it, it's something that I, that I talk about in the book, but I think we've seen even more uh, evolution in regards to the, some of the things that you're talking about since the book came out. Uh, Amazon has entered a new era of its evolution. There's, there's really no other way to put it. If we look at just Bezos's role personally, you know, sort of leaving the day-to-day -day operation of the company and and a huge risk in that too. Um, you know, we we all know the value of of the founder's energy in a business, and and as businesses scale and the founder gets farther and farther away from the front lines of the business, we oftentimes uh, see the business put at risk. But clearly, 
we're in the era of Jassy now. And you're right. He's making very, very different moves. It is not about growth at all costs anymore. It is not simply about you know new levels of customer acquisition. It's about refinement. It's about tightening. It's about rearranging the chessboard, if you will, and, and looking at things like staffing, delivery costs. Um, I think it was 2019, I believe, Amazon spent about $27 billion worth of funds on um, delivery. So that's certainly something they're going to be attacking um, and, and trying to innovate, I suspect, with various forms of driverless delivery, because about 40% of that $27 billion was the driver cost. I think they're going to be working more and more on predictive replenishment. And we know that they've been working, or we, we've heard anyway in the market, that they've been working on a refrigerator that use the same sort of technologies as, as Amazon Go stores. So I think it's going to become about trying to become the most efficient and cost-effective purveyor of goods within its marketplace anywhere in, in the world, setting a new benchmark for, for efficiency. But the reason, I think, for the transition is that I believe part of Jassy's role is now to bring Amazon to a new point in its evolution. And, and I fundamentally believe that what we're really seeing is Amazon now beginning to build out uh, what a friend of mine, Mike Sakur, calls a life ecosystem. So beyond simply being a marketplace filled with goods, I believe that Amazon wants to now become the everything company in people's lives. Uh, we've seen them make investments in education, in banking and fintech and payments. Certainly the media business is very, very strong. They've made nine or 10 major investments in healthcare just over the last four years. They offer insurance on their products. So there's a whole range now of other sectors that Amazon could, and I'm sure wants to, move into. I mean, just in the US alone, healthcare is a $4 trillion business, you know, close to 20% of GDP. And it in fact exceeds all other countries in that respect. So if Amazon could just take a healthy chunk of the US healthcare business, it would literally reinvent the company. Now, what about the marketplace? I believe the reason for wanting to get down to such a high degree of efficiency in the marketplace is so that they can literally use the marketplace as not-for-profit breadcrumbs that are just designed to keep bringing people in the door and exposing them then to this growing life ecosystem of services and other, uh, other products that are available. So while it might seem that Amazon has missed a step here and there. And, and while it might seem that the rest of the retail world is catching up to them very quickly, I believe that there's a much deeper reinvention happening. And if it goes well, if it goes according to plan, the scale and scope of Amazon today is going to look minuscule to what it might become tomorrow. All right. Everyone has heard it here. That's really something to watch. I have to say, though, this ecosystem, which does sound like something Amazon would be capable of, things like healthcare are actually ripe for disruption. I mean, the, the sort of nightmare of payments and paperwork is something that is ready to be reformed. But it does sound like something that leaves a lot of room for other retailers to provide a less efficient experience. I mean, a lot of shopping isn't necessarily 
the aim isn't really, it, it might be to ultimately acquire goods, but I mean, when shopping includes browsing and touching fabrics and thinking about it and walking down the avenue, window shopping, I mean, those are all part of the retail consumer experience. That doesn't sound like what you're describing. No, it's it's not. And to be honest with you, Daphne, I think that Amazon has fundamentally given up any hopes of of ever really becoming that place. You know, there was a point at which they dabbled with um, you know, some forms of of social activity. They they dabbled with some video media to try and make Amazon a more fun place to shop. But frankly, I, I think there's a point at which you have to sort of say, look, you know, I can want to be a basketball player all I want, but you know, I, I'm six feet tall, right? I'm not I'm not seven feet tall. I'm not built for basketball. So there comes a point at which I think Amazon says, look, if we are just an incredibly efficient means of people buying things in a hurry and getting them fast, let's be that. But let's be the best version of that that exists on the planet. And so I think that's where they're going to go. I mean, they could spend a tremendous amount of time, energy, and money trying to become a fun place to shop. I just don't know that that's going to be the case. And I think the opportunity on the other side for them, you know, if they can get into these other categories, and you mentioned the fact that, you know, healthcare is certainly a problematic category, you know, and a lot of energy that consumers spend trying to navigate that category. But I mean, education has really fallen on its face in many cases as well. How many people love their insurance company or their bank? So they're really attacking categories where there can be uh, tremendous progress made and where you know a new kind of consumer experience can be created much the way they they reinvented e-commerce uh, back in the day. So yeah, I hear you. I, I, there's certainly more to shopping than simply buying a product, but I think Amazon is in the business of helping people buy products and get them fast. So to the extent that they have given up some major aspects of what we think of the retail business that will still be conducted and, and appreciated by consumers, which is maybe shopping for apparel or furniture or the kind of shopping that doesn't require that kind of perfection and efficiency. But even on their website, Amazon has ceded a lot of their retail business to their sellers. I mean, 60%, maybe almost two thirds of the products they sell come from third party sellers. And that marketplace is now sort of being that, that style, that approach is being adopted by an increasing number of retailers. Walmart is definitely in that business and seems to be working hard to grow that business. But I mean, Target, Macy's all have forms of this. Talk about the rise of the third-party marketplace and, you know, is this a good thing for retail? For me as a consumer, it can, it makes me wary because it can be difficult to figure out who you're buying from and what you're getting. Yeah, I, I I think um first of all, um you're you're absolutely right in the observation that third party marketplaces now are are sort of growing like mushrooms in, in the market. It's almost odd when you encounter a major retailer today that doesn't have some sort of third party market component. The math of third party marketplaces is very compelling. 
In fact, when you break it right down, a product, all other things being equal, a product sold to a consumer successfully through a third-party marketplace can carry the kind of margins that you would normally expect something selling right off a sales floor in a store would. You know, so whereas e-commerce has traditionally been sort of a, a lower margin prospect for a lot of retailers, as soon as you turn it over to a third party to manage the delivery and logistics and that sort of thing, it can be very, very profitable. It also obviously uh, allows uh, a business like Kroger, for example, to sell things that they wouldn't normally sell. I mean, if you go on Kroger right now, I think you can buy a hand drill no problem. Uh, I was just doing some work with a a major manufacturer of mattresses in the US and was talking with their retailers. And if you search mattresses on walmart.com, I think you get something like a thousand different results. If you search it on Amazon, you get a thousand results. If you go to Kroger, you can buy a mattress. If you go to Lowe's, you can buy a mattress. If you go, you know, just about anywhere now, you can buy a mattress. And I think that's really important for retailers in all categories to understand. You know, retailers that sort of hold on to the idea that, well, because we sell mattresses, uh, people are going to want to come into showrooms and lay down on mattresses. And it's just simply not the case anymore. Everything is available everywhere, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There is no exclusivity. So it, it is transforming retail. Now, for the downsides, you're right. Um, the experience can be sketchy. You know, it, it, you may get lucky. You may have a seamless transaction. You may be perfectly happy. But there is this sort of uh, inherent risk in buying from a, a third party, and, and in some cases, that may be sort of obtuse to even know whether or not this is coming from Walmart or is it coming from an outside vendor. Um, so the customer experience can suffer. And, and so what it means is retailers have to have ex incredibly stringent uh, controls and, and standards for their third-party marketplace uh, partners. But yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely now you know, a question of retailers saying, look, you know, every time somebody goes to Amazon for something that we don't sell, they may be buying something that we do sell. So we have to turn the tables on that. And that's where third-party comes in. I suppose for Amazon, when the aim is to be the everything store, you can see why there's the emphasis is going to be on volume and variety. Whereas maybe for a Nordstrom, you're going to want to be a little bit more careful about what and who is selling on your marketplace. So if you have a brand that could get affected by the experience of ordering from a, a seller that maybe is either selling fakes or not providing the kind of customer service that you have promised your customer, that's something to be wary of. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think I think everyone agrees today that everything matters, right? And so if you if you are running a third party marketplace and you do have participants in that marketplace that are letting your customers down, that's that's your black eye. That's not theirs. The, the consumer may never even know who they were, but it certainly is is something that um, that you, that you have to account for. Yeah. So you know, great upside from margin standpoint, from a profitability standpoint, from the ability of being able to go out to the market and say, "Hey, no matter what you want, you know, we're likely to have it." That's great. But uh, you know, you do have to sort of measure 
the impact of, of bad experiences if they're taking place within, within your marketplace. Here's a, this isn't really a marketplace, but I have to say that Instagram these days almost feels like a marketplace. If you scroll through Twitter, you'll see ads and I think rarely do people actually click on them. But with Instagram, they're more inviting and they seem extremely well targeted, at least in my experience. And it almost feels more like a bazaar or a flea market or something where you're walking past an actual possibly interesting stand with interesting goods. Talk to me about social media these days. If it's value to brands and retailers is in that sort of direct selling, or are we talking more? Is it for influencers? Is it more good than bad? What's going on with social media right now? Um, I'll just say yes. Does that, does, that, <laughs> does that answer every question? Um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much going on, right? But I mean, let's talk about the first thing you mentioned, you know, the, the idea that now in your, in your Instagram feed um, or whether it's YouTube videos that you're watching, retail has now become ambient, right? The, the idea, uh, you know, I, when I wrote my first book, Retail Revival, in, in uh, 2013, one, one of the things I mentioned in that book is that we're moving out of the age where we search for products and we're moving into the age where products search for us. And I think that's, that's what's happening now. Um, retail is everywhere. It's in every, it's seemingly in, in every Instagram post, uh, you know, there's a commercial component to virtually every YouTube video. Everybody's got merchandise that they're selling or they're affiliating, uh, with, with, uh, buying opportunities. Um, you know, there are ads embedded in everything. So retail is no longer something that we need to even consciously, in many cases, go and do, uh, whether that's going to the store or going online to shop on Amazon. And this has had a real impact on Amazon. In fact, not just Amazon, but Alibaba as well. At the height of the pandemic, Daniel Zhang, uh, CEO of, of Alibaba, said, um, it's been really hard. Like we've got new competition that's seemingly coming at us from everywhere. And I think it's because social media and media in general now is just saturated with products and buying opportunities. And, you know, the, the neat thing is you mentioned that there's sort of this weird sort of serendipity where increasingly you see more and more things that you find appealing, you know, and, and, I'm certainly buying more through social and, and young consumers report, I think it's about 40 or 50% now report buying things on a fairly regular basis from their social feeds. So it, it, it is absolutely uh, happening. And I, and I think all the more reason why Amazon is sort of looking at, at this changing landscape and saying, you know, if all we do is continue to be a destination online marketplace for goods, if that's the only trick that we have um, at hand, we're basically going to be embarking on a wind down because e-commerce isn't special anymore. It's, it's everywhere. So this is a good time to go back to what you were saying about retailers being entertaining. And honestly, I have to ask you about the metaverse. This is not an area that I'm very familiar with as a consumer. And also, I, I cover a lot of things at Retail Dive, but I'm not covering this. Doug, tell me about the metaverse. 
was it a fever dream? Like the whole thing? Was it just, was it just a figment of our imagination? Is it, yeah. Is it happening? Did it happen? (laughs) Is it over? Are we at the beginning or are we at the end? What's going on with the metaverse? And I guess one, one thing I'm wondering is do retailers and brands understand the potential of the metaverse? I don't think they do. I, I mean, look, in fairness, um, so first of all, let's let's take them one at a time. Did the metaverse happen? No, uh, it didn't. And, and, it, and it hasn't. And, and it won't for some time. Um, virtually everybody uh, who really understands the technologies, the protocols, the platforms uh, that will potentially comprise the metaverse uh, agrees that we're, we're looking at at least a five to 10 year arc. Initially, I think the pandemic was this, this unusual exclamation point on, on a period of time where collectively and globally, our imagination sort of moved to the virtual. You know, we were all stuck in our houses we were doing, you know, meetings for work on Zoom calls. Uh, everyone was feeling this sense of disconnection. And, and so a lot of these things that we'd been talking about for an awful long time, and I mean, the whole kind of vision of the metaverse, if you will, is sort of spawned from a, a 1992 uh, book by a guy named Neil Stevenson. But the pandemic sort of really, I think, brought the conversation forward. And and made the metaverse sound like something that was imminent, you know. But what's interesting to me is, is this: if you look at the Gartner hype cycle, and and Gartner uh, Consulting does a, does a thing annually they call the hype cycle, where they look at various technologies, and they they try and predict where these technologies are in their evolution. And they say that you know usually a technology has an innovation trigger, so there's something that happens, whether it's socially, economically, environmentally, whatever, that triggers the innovation. Then there's sort of this period of heightened expectations where everybody's hyping the technology and consumers get excited, and then they release a product. And very, very often, new technologies well undershoot consumer expectations. Clay Christensen uh, talked about this in depth in, in the Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, you think back to the first, you know, the first mobile phones. They, had, they were the size of a loaf of bread and they weighed five pounds. You know, um, very few people wanted to carry one around. But here we are, 25, 30 years later, and we've all got supercomputers in our pockets. So over time, these things develop. They they um, modify. They pivot. They you know they they adapt and they become useful technologies. What's interesting about the metaverse is that most of the technologies that we were talking about not that long ago NFTs, VR, AR, blockchain, crypto all these technologies are now over the the period of, of heightened expectations. And we are into what Gartner calls the trough of disillusionment. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, you know, the, the trough of disillusionment is where you, you are saying now, uh, well, you know, I bought this NFT, 
but the company I bought it for went out of business. And so do I even own my NFT anymore? Uh, and, and if I do, can I use it? Um, you know, the trough of disillusionment is where you say, you know, I just made this massive in investment in crypto and, and, and that's crashed, you know? So there's a lot of consumers now saying, you know, these, these, a lot of these technologies were a real disappointment, but what lies on the other side of the trough of disillusionment is the slope of enlightenment. And that's where these things start to get better. And so I think if anything, we're going to see an acceleration of many of these technologies, but they may not come out on the other end in the same form that they went in. So for example, we think of blockchain as being sort of integrally associated with crypto. And it is to an extent. Crypto, by definition, would have a very difficult time operating if it weren't for the blockchain. But blockchain doesn't need crypto to exist. Blockchain doesn't need crypto to have utility. And so I think blockchain is something we're going to see become more functional, more practical, and something that will now begin to be incorporated into supply chain management technologies and other business technologies. VR. Yeah, sure. VR experiences would be great, but who's going to walk around with a VR headset? So I think we're going to see significant development in terms of the form factor for VR. AR, I think, augmented reality is going to, in, in probably a, quite a short period of time, become pretty mainstream consumer tool that most retailers are able to offer their consumers. Uh, NFTs, you know, a lot of us were scratching our heads and wondering why would anyone want to buy an NFT of a cartoon, you know, for, and spend thousands of dollars on it. But I think the, the other thing that lies within the concept of NFTs is smart contracts. And smart contracts are something that could have massive utility. You know, think about all the guarantees that you have for products that you buy warranty information, that sort of thing. All of that could be baked into a smart contract that is essentially an NFT that comes with your product. You know, so I think that the short answer to the question, and I'm not really known for short answers, I apologize, but the short answer is the metaverse didn't happen. Um, we engaged in a uh, robust global conversation about it. Some people portrayed it as being something that was either happening or was going to happen imminently. That's not true. Uh, we're probably at least five to 10 years away. But I do think that the pandemic accelerated many of these technologies over the, the hump and into the trough of disillusionment. And so by definition, it has sort of sped them along toward the slope of enlightenment. And it may have actually shortened the amount of time before we start seeing some of them come out on the other end with new and better utility than they entered that curve with. By the way, I just have to say at this point that your not short answers are one of the joys of this annual podcast tradition. So don't shorten <laughs> anything. On a really small scale, what you're talking about sort of reminds me of QR codes. I feel like there was a period where I was hearing about QR codes, QR codes, QR codes, and they never really happened except maybe in the back room. And now QR codes are everywhere. I use it to connect to one of my streaming services on the television. All the restaurants in town right. have their menus. I mean, they're just everywhere now. Yeah, and that's exactly the case. You're you're absolutely right. You know, in the early what was it, you know, 2008, 
nine, 10, maybe, you know, we, we started to hear about QR codes and everyone was sort of positioning them as the next big thing. And, you know, I think consumers tried them and there was maybe a, a minimal level of utility. Um, some of them were clunky, you had to download an app just to be able to scan a QR code. And so, you know, they went into the trough of disillusionment and lo and behold, we come out on the other side. Everybody has a phone now that can scan them with their camera. Retailers have figured out how to actually peg useful information to them or experiences to them. And so now they're, yeah, they're becoming, uh, you know, a blade in, in the consumer Swiss army knife. So if the metaverse is, if the true enlightened, enjoyable, meaningful, actual metaverse is a ways away, is that a reprieve for real life IRL 3D malls and shopping centers and stores? The mall owners tend to be super upbeat about the industry. The financial reports tell a little bit of a different story. There are a lot of malls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're are, medicated. They're just medicated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think especially traditional malls and even strip centers are, there, there's a lot of the U.S. landscape that is dominated by these structures. What's going to happen? Are they going to get turned into parks? Do their owners need to spend money to re-envision what's going on in those places? I don't see the traditional mall, the, the one of the 80s and 90s, continuing on. But what's going to happen to those places? Those are real life places. You can't, you can't adjust the code to fix what's going on there the way you could in the metaverse. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not a programming error. Um, or maybe it is. Um, you know, the easy way to put it is this. Shopping centers today, the shopping center industry is dead, but they don't know it. Or, or if they do know it, they're, they're trying to put a happy face on it. They're, they're trying to pretend that everything is okay. It's like that little meme of that little dog sitting there having a beer and the whole place mm -hmm. around them is on fire, you know, and they're saying, this is fine. You know, everything's fine. Um, the truth is, if you look at this in a really practical way and you ask yourself, why, why was it that we ever went to shopping centers? Whatever prompted us to get in the car and go to a shopping center. Well, uh, there were a few reasons. First of all, it was a social outing. Oftentimes you'd meet up with friends there. Uh, if, if you wanted to buy music, you'd go to the record store. If you wanted to buy tickets, you would often go to the mall and buy tickets there at the you know, Ticketmaster or whatever other outlet was there. Uh, it was... Um, certainly where you started almost every shopping journey, if you didn't know what you wanted, you just went to the mall. It was, you know, it was the internet before the internet kind of thing. Well, guess what? Now there's an internet and people meet on Facebook or, or, you know, or, or they meet via live stream. Uh, most shopping journeys don't begin at the mall. They begin on Amazon as it turns out. And many of them end there or online. You know, I can buy tickets online. I can buy music online. But the mall as a concept, the mall as an idea, has essentially outlived its commercial and social purpose. All of these functions now are 
resident on my iPhone, right? So malls have to recognize, shopping centers have to recognize, and we've done a tremendous amount of work recently in the shopping center industry. They have to recognize they're not in the commercial real estate industry anymore. It's not about just building a center and leasing space and managing space and depending on you know the Lululemon and the Apple Store and and you know some some other novelty retailer to drive traffic to the center consumers don't live with that level of fear of missing out anymore you know if i can't get to an apple store at your shopping center i'll, I'll go online or same applies to Lululemon so what does it all mean it means that shopping centers have to recognize that they are now in the entertainment hospitality, and media business. That's the new industry that they are in. And that means they have to now potentially begin to acquire new skills, new staff, new alliances with entertainment and media companies, because they can't depend on anyone to drive audience to the center except them. They have to be the ones that drive audience and put that audience in front of the retailers who choose to be in the center. Because the other side of the coin, Daphne, is that, you know, you have brands like Nike saying, we don't need malls anymore. We don't need to be in the mall. We don't need to, you know, have uh, other retailers around us to sort of drive traffic. But if the center can become a place where people love to go. Um, in, in the book, I talk about four pillars of the new shopping center. First of all, it, it has to become a distinct place, not just a big concrete box somewhere out in the dusty suburbs, but a distinct place where as soon as I get there, I feel this sense of place. The center has to be the uh, driver of population, whether that's through mixed use or by staging events, you know, huge events throughout the year to drive people to the center to see something they can't see otherwise. And then once they're there, they have to be treated to productions, you know, so center should be aligning with event companies, entertainment companies, live production companies to show uh, visitors things that they couldn't see elsewhere. And then finally become a platform, basically convert them all from being this analog thing, this analog space to becoming sort of a liquid platform. So people can shop the mall uh, remotely. They can enjoy the experiences that are happening at the mall potentially uh, online. And, and, you know, then the mall can, can basically expand its own trading area as well. So it's not just a tweak. It's not, it's not just, you know, well, we have to have basically the same sort of shopping center, but with a few novelties or, or side acts. The entire idea of a shopping center needs to be reinvented from the ground up. And that makes a lot of people in the industry very, very nervous. The reason I would think it makes them nervous is because that sounds like a lot of money to take what is probably a maybe a 50-year-old building at least and turning it into something with more flexibility that sounds like real money 
It it's certainly, yeah. I mean, it it's certainly going to carry a price tag. And you know, it it, it also, I think, when you get into the the heart of most shopping center developers, when when you get into the executive ranks, very often what you find is that the, the power in those organizations really sat with leasing. Leasing was, you know, leasing was the dog and, and everyone else in the company were basically the fleas because leasing was what drove success. It was the leasing guys and, and it was guys mostly, um, you know, over, over the course of the last number of decades in the industry. They would be the ones that were going out and finding that dream tenant, you know, and 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 signing a good good deal with them, and and really uh, pushing the revenue in the organization. And so they were kings. And now you come in, you say, well, look, it's not it's not about just leasing space anymore. It's about creating things. It's about creating moments and and experiences and building audiences, you know, because. Retailers, all they're seeing on a four-wall basis in terms of sales is they're seeing more and more sales go online each year, less and less sales coming from physical retail. So retailers aren't clamoring to get into shopping centers now because that's the only way they can sell stuff. Nike's doing 50% of its sales direct to consumer. You know, um, and a a significant portion of that online. So the leasing teams get very nervous because this means potentially that they are not the kings of the company anymore. So you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear, I think it was WD Partners, they surveyed some consumers. One of the things that people want to see that would bring them to the mall is a farmer's market. Yeah. Think of the Grove, yeah, in L.A., Exactly. Well, and the Grove in LA is, is also, I mean, it's outdoor and it's it's aesthetically a far cry from a lot of the malls yeah. in the US. So, I mean, is aesthetics part of it? Or when you talk about place, is it that we want more green space and light? Or are you also talking about mixing residential with medical and retail and hospitality and dining. I mean, are, are, are these mini communities almost? Yes. And, and, and no, yes. In the sense that, yes, I think, I think mixed use and building community around shopping centers is certainly one avenue. And, and, and it's something that a lot of uh, companies in the sector today are, are pursuing. You know, they're, they're sort of, you know, taking um, uh, an, an underperforming center and they're saying, well, you know, let's let's build some resident population around this center and try and breathe some life into it. And, and that 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 will work to some extent in the short term, but it really does ignore the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is that you have this archaic asset that now sits right in the center of that community. So on the one hand, yeah, you can create place by, by creating a mixed-use community around an, an aging uh, shopping center, but you can also create place by doing things that people are willing to come and see. People are, are the desire to come and see these things because it feels different. It looks different. There are surprises when I go, things I didn't expect to see or participate in or try or smell or taste. You know, 
we have to get back to making the shopping center a visceral experience for people. If it's really just about going to a center and shopping the analog version of the same 200 retailers I could shop for my iPhone on my sofa, we've missed the point. It's about getting back to the art of retail, the Barnum and Bailey, you know, three ring circus aspect of it. So I don't have anything against mixed use. I think that's a great, great idea. And, and, and you know, what used to be conventional tenancies, doctors' offices, um, other commercial outlets, I think it's great. You know, find, find ways to insert those back into the shopping center landscape. But we have to address the idea that the shopping center is no longer just this monolithic building in the suburbs with a bunch of retailers in it. It's a stage. It's potentially a studio. It's something that, that is constantly changing, constantly evolving, and with new things to show people. That's how we breathe life back into it. I would say that the last decade of retail, you could argue maybe even more than that, but certainly the last decade has been about the science of retail, right? It's been about how can we technologize, how can we extract data from the physical world? How can we use science and technology to make retail more efficient, right? And I think that's been the battle cry. I think for the next decade, it's going to be about returning to the art of retail. It's going to be about how do you create an experience that is so memorable that it literally becomes the most powerful form of media that your brand can engage in. And that is a different set of muscles, you know, than than just um, having developers and programmers deconstruct your retail landscape. It's about showmanship. It's kind of getting back to um, you know the the days of of Gordon Selfridge, you know, the the merchant showman, uh, if you will. So, and I think that's a good thing. I, I, I welcome that new era. I feel like we've traveled in time and into the metaverse and back to real life and talk a little bit about not just what's happening in retail in the past few years and now, but the future. So we're recording this midway through the holiday shopping season. People listening to this, it's probably either the tail end of the old year or just the beginning of 2023. And I have to say, Doug, again, this is one of my favorite ways to end out the year and start a new one. I appreciate you continuing this tradition with me and happiest new year to you. Thank you very much, Daphne. And, and it really is, it's a pleasure to uh, to end the year like this with uh, you as well. And, and hopefully, you know, as we look forward to the next year, hopefully we do move beyond uh, so much of the, the headlines that we see today and, and kind of get back to uh, a good place. Agreed. This episode of The Backroom was produced and edited by Caroline Jansen. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.